Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello, I am Claire Williams and you are listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, it's TC here with another episode of Beyond the Grid presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. This week's guest is someone I've known since I started working in F1 20 years ago. She comes from good stock. I go so far as to say her family is Formula One royalty. And it's been fun to watch her rise through the ranks at Williams from press officer to her current role as deputy team principal. She's a hard worker, she's passionate, she's modest, and she's also a laugh. I'm talking, of course, about Claire Williams. She's been DTP, as she calls it, for more than five years, and she's experienced every emotion under the sun during that time. Off track, her mother died shortly after she took over the reins of the team. She also got married and she's had a baby, little Nate. On track, there were the highs of 2014 when the team scored nine podiums and took a pole position en route to third in the Constructors' Championship through to the difficulties of 2018 when Williams have endured the least competitive season in their history. I caught up with Claire at the team's Grove headquarters where I was greeted at the door by none other than Frank Williams, her father and the founder of Williams F1. He takes a back seat these days in terms of the day-to-day running of the team, but it was great to see him sat at his temporary desk in the reception area between Damon Hill's 1996 title-winning FW18 and Juan Pablo Montoya's FW26 from 2004. When I told Frank the reason for my visit, he said, ah, you're here to see the boss. Indeed I was. Claire was running late after a series of meetings at Overrun, but it wasn't a problem and it was worth the wait. I hope you enjoy our chat. Well, Claire, thank you for joining me on Beyond the Grid. Great to have you with us. We're at Grove on the Tuesday after the Mexican Grand Prix and fair to say, busy. Mm, Yes, I'm sorry I was so late, but it's lovely to see you, Tom. Thank you for coming all the way out to the sticks to talk to me today. It's a really nice welcome distraction from what's been quite a difficult few weeks. Well, look, let's talk. I know a lot of Williams fans out there are going, 2018, let's get on to 2019. But how much of a shock has this year been for you? Um, It's been an enormous shock, actually, you know, I fully expected to come into this year in a much better place. I think we all did. And I think probably a lot of fans of ours around the world thought that we were going to be coming out with a a much quicker race car. That was the expectation. Um, and so when we got to even testing, we didn't even have to wait till Australia to really realise that that wasn't the case. Um, but as the season has progressed, certainly in the earlier races, It was an enormous shock. I couldn't quite believe that Williams was repeatedly finding itself down, you know, at the bottom of the grid in either qualifying or at the racetrack. And I don't think I've quite gotten over that shock yet. All I know is that there's two races to go um, and I can't wait till the checkered flag in Abu Dhabi, if I'm allowed to say that. So 
What guarantees can you give people that 2019 is going to be better? I can't. Um, I wish I could, but as everybody knows in Formula One, you can work your hardest, you can make every single change that you think is possible. And we've been doing so much work behind the scenes in the past um, four or five months on many different things, not just the race car and our performance. But I can't guarantee, I don't know. You know, I'm not an, you know, even Paddy doesn't know, I'm not an engineer, so I don't know. I can look at the data, I can look at the metrics and I can see where we are. But until we know where everybody else is, we don't know where we're going to be. We could do the best job in the world and find five seconds over the winter, but everybody else could, and then we'll still be three seconds behind. So that's, I think, probably one of the hardest things about Formula One and when you're not doing so well in it, or even when you are doing so well in it, that um, you don't know where you are until the next season comes around. All I can say is that we're doing every single thing possible to make sure that we address every single problem that we have in this team in order to make sure that 2019 is better for us. But if it's not, then at least I know that we're setting ourselves up for certainly a better future beyond that. Now, you mentioned Paddy, Paddy Lowe, technical director. How has he explained the performance this season to you? Yeah, clearly we've had countless meetings with Paddy, with the whole technical group. I think clearly there are a number of issues at play, um, but I, I'm not one to air dirty laundry. I think it's really difficult to do that. And one of the things that I'm proudest of this year is that the team has really stuck together. You know, we could have imploded. We could have all started a load of infighting. We could have sacked off, you know, the people, but that's not the way that I wanted this to play out. Of course, we've had conversations and we know the clear areas of weakness. I think probably the world can see, you know, the biggest areas of weakness, weakness for us. And of course, there has to be accountability. You know, we have to look at where we've gone wrong. Um, you know, probably aero, we went wrong with cooling, but there are many other factors at play. You don't find yourself um, sliding back from P5 to P10 in the championship with a lot of other things at play as well. It's not just about how we went about designing our race car over the winter. There are a lot of other factors at play that, you know, when I talk about there's a lot of other work going on to rectify the issues. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Right, let's move on. Sorry, that probably <laughs> made no sense whatsoever. No, it did, it did. <laughs> did, did, did. No, Clay, I know what hey, I'm it's, about. it's a really tough thing for you. I totally understand that. Look, let's look bigger picture. Let's talk about Claire Williams. Were you always destined to run this team? No, never. I, it was never in I mean, my destiny to run it. My parents were very um, strong in their opinions that nepotism was not a good thing, that this was, as my mum always called it, dad's train set, and he'd rather smash it up than let other people play with it. Um, yeah, my parents really were very normal, I suppose, as normal as we all can be in Formula One living in our bubble. Um, they they very much wanted all of their children to go off and do their own thing and make their own way in this world and not to hang off dad's coattails. And I really respected that. And I had no aspirations at a young age to run it. I loved it. I loved coming to the racetrack. It was always a real treat. And I loved working at Williams in my holidays, which I spent an awful lot of time doing. What did you do? So when I was young, really young, like four or five, I used to come in and I used to annoy all the secretaries. I used to do the mail franking. I used to be able, allowed to type um, envelopes, the addresses on envelopes for fan mail, things like that. I used to. Are still... we talking early eighties here? When sort of what yeah. was it? Carlos yeah, Reutemann yeah. and Alan Jones. Yeah. People. Dad yeah. used to take us into the factory when Mum was annoyed with us on Saturdays and wanted a bit of Mum time, alone time, and we used to go in with Dad, and I loved it. I think I was probably 
more annoying than anything. I spent a lot of time stealing stationery. I loved delving into the stationery cupboard and, and nicking all the good stuff in there. And as I as I grew older, I started working in the travel office. So working with Dickie Stanford, our team manager, and Donna Robertson. I spent most of my holidays going and annoying them and so trying to... this is to, you as a teenager, is yeah, it? Yeah, trying to book flights. And I used to go and hand the itineraries out to the boys and give them their tickets in the days of paper airplane tickets. And I loved it. It was brilliant. But I never thought I would ever have a job here and it was made very clear to me that I wouldn't have one. And then you read politics at university with a view thinking thinking that that would help you within Formula One or what were you thinking you were going to do at that point? Uh, no, there was no um, view as to why I decided to do politics. Actually, my university career was a somewhat lacklustre one. I actually was thrown out of my first year having gone in to do Spanish and Portuguese, couldn't even answer the first question in my Portuguese oral at the end of my first year when she said, hello, what's your name? I was thrown out and I begged and pleaded um, for a place because I couldn't bear to tell my parents that I'd been kicked out of university. And I didn't know what I wanted to study, but all my friends seemed to quite, that were studying politics, seemed to quite enjoy it. So I went back in and did politics and I have to say I loved it. I can't remember a thing about what I learned, um, but I really enjoyed doing it at the time. But at some level, even subconsciously, it must help now or not? No. Not, no, no, not really. No, I, I've always said kind of, you know, the paddock is a very political place, but learning about US politics doesn't help me in the paddock in my day-to-day job these days, not really. Okay. No. It might may stand me in good stead if it all goes extremely wrong at Williams. Maybe I'll go and become some local councillor or something. Uh, <laughs> now, you, you said that you were here as a teenager. So we're talking, that would have been late 80s. You make it? me feel really old now. Late aren't 80s. You? Well, we're kind of we're the same vintage you and I late always 80s, say. Late 80s, yeah. Same <laughs> Let's vintage. say late 80s. <laughs> Very fine wine. Yes, yeah. um, what about, so so just memories, memories of that time. Oh, with, I have amazing memories. So of what was that? For trays and boots and Nelson. Yeah, all, all those um, lovely drivers. Nigel. Um, yeah, I remember Nigel quite a lot. He used to come to our house. Like, I remember him coming mum always used to make an enormous effort when these guys would would turn up and dad would bring them around and you know make sure the house is beautiful but not just the house the garden and for Nigel's visit one day she'd planted a load of very rare black tulips they're probably not rare these days but they certainly were back then in all these beautiful huge flower pots outside our house and Nigel rocked up in a helicopter which as you can imagine promptly ripped the heads off all these beautiful tulips that my mum had spent days and weeks nurturing. Um, There are loads of lovely memories. I remember dad finally capitulating and agreeing to take me to some races when I was about 13, 14. He said you can come with me by yourself. I can believe it. And choose, you can choose a race, but um, you have to travel with the boys, travel with the team. You're not traveling with me, um, which I was thrilled by because I loved, you know, going with Dickie, you know, poor old Dickie having to babysit me when I was a 14 year old. Um, but that, that's probably my, my, the trip to Hungary in 92, which is obviously Nigel's championship winning there. I, winning year I was there I traveled on the plane with the boys I traveled in every morning you know it was like five six a.m wake-ups to travel in with the boys um and then you know traveling out with them at night at 11 o'clock I don't know what my dad was doing I didn't see him once so I was just left to my own devices but it was great but I'm so lucky you know to grow up in Formula One and now to work in it and to have all these memories of those those brilliant drivers but I suppose that makes me quite 
sad to think that those days are over for us and those were our glory days. And, you know, it feels so long ago now as well. But when I see Nigel, so often see him at a race if he's stewarding or at the British Grand Prix, it just, you know, he feels part of my family. And but do I'm you become s- that 14 year old again when you're talking to him? I feel very strange. And I was only talking about this this morning that I f- feel I'm in awe of these guys because this is what, you know, this is how we were brought up in our house, racing drivers. You know, we were kids that were brought up very much to be seen and not heard. You know, when we were taken to the racetrack, we were put to work. We weren't there, you know, floating around as Frank and Virginia's children. My job was sandwich making, tea making for the boys um, and then washing up. Those were my jobs. And then when we'd done our jobs, we were told to go and entertain ourselves in the merchandise areas. Um, So we always knew how important that environment was and how we needed to be or how we needed to behave around certain individuals, racing drivers, team principals. So now doing the job that I do, having grown up being, um, I suppose, indoctrinated how to behave around certain people, now that I have to sit in meetings with team principals and hold my own, but also, you know, be the boss of racing drivers all of a sudden, that is, there's still kind of a hangover of those days when I should really be seen and not heard. It's just quite, it's quite a, a weird, trans, it's been a weird transition for me. Tax day is coming. Oh no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. What about the influences of, of mum and dad on you? I mean, let's, let's talk about the old man, first of all. What sort of a dad was he? What do you think has rubbed off on you? Was are you mom... like him? How like him are you? Oh, it's um, a lot of questions in one. Um, A lot of people will say that my dad was a useless dad because he wasn't present. But my dad was a wonderful dad. I couldn't ask for a better father. Um, He wasn't around. You know, my dad never once came and watched me in a school match or I went to boarding school. He never, ever came and collected me. The one time he turned up was to a parents teacher meeting. And um, unfortunately, the tables were all organized in the canteen where the meetings were being held far too close together for his wheelchair to wheel through and so it caused a bit of a commotion that was all rather embarrassing when you're 13 years old that's the only time he ever turned up so he wasn't there but you know I I have such fond memories of him and you know I think probably my biggest memories are around his accident and I suppose because of his accident I've always wanted to take care of my dad you know for me my dad has always been the most important person in my life and uh, he's a very special person and I feel, you know, still, you know, as much as he's my dad, I've always felt that I have to look after him. Um, he'd hate me for saying that because my dad, as everyone knows, doesn't need any looking after. Um, but I have a really special relationship with him. I always have had. I always will. I think I'm pretty similar to him. I think he has qualities far greater than my own. He's much better at running a Formula One team than I ever could imagine I could be. Um, but he's also, he's incredibly generous and he's incredibly loving and people don't see that side of him. I remember I went to a wedding once 
And you know, when dad was going to all the races and he'd be watching the TV screens with that quite a grumpy look on his face, but hey, he's watching his cars and it's a serious business. Um, but people used to comment on that a lot to me. God, your dad looks so grumpy. What's wrong with him? He's like, he's at work. Does your dad smile when he's at work? And I was sat at a wedding um, reception, surrounded by some people that I knew and some people that I didn't on either side of me. And, you know, the conversation, as it inevitably does, gets to what do you do? And I said, I work in Formula One. Oh, that's cool. You know, what do you do? And uh, I said, I work for Williams. And they went, oh, oh, that's cool. And I said, I'm a press officer there. And they said, oh, that's really cool. He said, do you um, do you get to see that Frank very often then? And at this point, the friends of mine that are on the table kind of drop their forks and having a bit of a listen. And, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm the press officer. So I have to, you know, do his interviews and, you know, hold the dictaphone and stuff for when he, and whatever, write his press releases. And they went, so can we ask you a question? Is he really that much of a grumpy arsehole that he looks on the telly? And like literally the whole table <laughs> went silent. And I was like, yeah, you know, sometimes he can be a bit grumpy, you know, all the rest of it. And I didn't say anything because I didn't want to embarrass him. But then obviously one of my mates afterwards went and spilled the beans on the fact that he was my dad. And the poor guy, I think literally he went home straight away. It ruined the wedding for him. And I saw him a few years later and he was still absolutely horrified by what he'd said. But people have this, you know, perception of my dad, um, you know, seeing him on the telly or whatever. But you're, clearly he's going to be serious when he's at work. He was you know, a very successful team principal. Um, but at home, he's, he's very different. He's an incredibly loving father. How much did his accident in March 86 affect the dynamic within the family? Um, it probably dramatically affected it. But um, we have probably only realised that subsequently, probably in our 20s, we realised. I was nine when dad had his accident and... My mother was an incredibly stoic woman and very, you know, typical British stiff upper lip. This isn't going to change anything. And she really was able to manage the whole situation in a way that we were quite, we were very shielded from really the huge change in our whole lives. And particularly, I think, mum's life and our parents as a, you know, as husband and wife. Um, Now being married myself and, you know, I'm entering that period where, with my husband, we're reaching that age where mum and dad's life was so dramatically changed by that. And I can't imagine what that must be like to you know, be living a wonderful life, suddenly achieving all this success. And then you have this horrific accident that and suddenly your husband, you know, finds himself a quadriplegic. And you've got I mean, I've only got one child, but my mum had three of us. And yet she managed the whole thing with extraordinary resolve that we were very much shielded from the actual real implications I suppose of what was going on. Did you get closer to your mum as a result of all of that? Um, no my mum was um, she, she wasn't your typical mum I don't think she really could be she, she didn't really come from a family that um, she came from a, a quite a, a wealthy I suppose family that you, know, you got on with things and you, you, emotions didn't really come into a whole lot of stuff. She was a great mum but we didn't, I went to boarding school as well a couple of years after my dad's accident. And so I wasn't at home a whole lot. And, you know, I had a good relationship with my mum, but it wasn't a, you know, a real touchy-feely mother-daughter type relationship. How influential was mum, Ginny, uh, over Frank and just the running of the team? I've heard stories of, you know, she was, was it behind every great man, there's a great woman. And she was yeah. very much steering the ship with Frank. Is that true? Um I don't think you can necessarily steering the ship with Frank. It wasn't like she was 
in meetings, you know, the factory nine to five, Monday to Friday. But she definitely was an amazing, um, had an amazing ear. She was a great listener for Frank when he wanted to talk about stuff. And when he didn't, she would certainly, you know, wade in anyway. You know, there are stories about how mum affected driver decisions over the years. Do you think she really did? Yeah, she she absolutely did. If it wasn't for mum, Nigel wouldn't have driven our car in the 80s. No way. What Um, was it about Nigel that she liked so much? Frank and Patrick were going for in one particular direction and he'd come to the house and um, so I think who to, come have to the house the driver who I'm not going to name oh go on no I'm not it's doing it it's a long time that. ago no I'm not no. doing it it's not right um, come to the house for kind of you know the final supper sign the contract and he stayed over and the next morning when he'd gone Frank asked my mum you know what, what do you reckon and she said oh for god's sake absolutely not and <laughs> was he, dad was a bit was he really rude aback. at dinner or something no and dad was like why what on earth do you do and she said well the guy made his bed this morning no racing driver worth their salt makes their bed frank <laughs> that was her philosophy racing drivers should not make their own beds you know they're racing drivers they don't do things as mundane as make their own bed do you make your own bed uh, I do make my own bed, yes. <laughs> okay, so you're never going to make it as a driver. <laughs> yeah, I think there are many other reasons why I wouldn't make it as a racing driver than just How making my own bed. So, what, so, so said, She okay. said, I don't understand why you're not picking Nigel. You need to choose Nigel. That's the story. You know, I've never verified it with either of my parents, but I think it's in my mum's book and it's kind of become folklore around Williams and those close to us. Desperately racking my brains to think what sort of racing driver would have made their bed in the mid-80s, but... Mm. No, probably you, you wouldn't. Yeah. Know. No. <laughs> Just survey. <laughs> no, um, you touched on earlier the fact that you were a press officer at the team. but uh, So after uni, you came out and you worked at Silverstone for a while, didn't I you? I did, yeah. Then came here, mm-hmm. uh, comms team, worked your way up through the team. At what mm. point did you start thinking of deputy team principal and actually this was a ship that you wanted to steer rather than just be a member of the crew oh I didn't it wasn't me it was nothing to do with me I'm always one of those people that I like getting my head down and just working behind the scenes that's how I've always operated I loved you talked about me working at Silverstone I loved my time at Silverstone I would still be there if I'd if I hadn't been made redundant Um, it was such a fantastic place to work and just, just because they're the people there, they were wonderful. And Silverson has always had a, a place in my heart, but since working there, it has an even greater one. Um, but so my whole time at Williams, I just, I loved being a press officer. I absolutely adored my job. And I just kept my head down and I had a great boss, Liam Clogger, um, who mentored me for, gosh, like seven, eight years. And my promotions that came very quickly um, from 2010 onwards were nothing to do with me. I was, I'm not one of those people. My mum calls them the squeaky wheel. Um, I never put my hands up, say, I want this and I want that and give me more money. I think I was still earning 30 grand after seven years of working at Williams because I never asked for any more. I just loved what I, what I did. And so it was other people that put dad, me into those. Dad, no, 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 or? not dad. It was actually Adam Parr that really pushed me into the head of comms role and then into head of marketing, head of commercial, and then put me on the board um, to represent the family shareholding um, in 2012. And then the whole situation, because Toto was involved in the team at the time. And Toto then, Wolf. Yeah, Toto Wolf. So the whole situation with him and his potential move to Mercedes came up. And that was when he um, phoned me and said, I want you to become deputy team principal and I'm not going unless unless you agree to do this and take this on. So that was Toto Wolf. Mm. 
Yeah, it's all his fault. <laughs> That's how I remember anyway. But there's a very... Did Mr. Ecclestone have anything to yeah, do with it? Yeah, he did. I was about to go in that tell that story. So um, Toto and I had many conversations over that winter. And the only other person I discussed it with was my mum, who I thought when I first broached it with her would hit the roof um, and say, don't be so ridiculous. What are you thinking but about? But why would mum think that? Uh, just because I think, um, you know, I suppose maybe the reason she, I thought... Well, she said the only concern that she had was that she'd seen everything that my dad had to give up to run a racing team and she didn't want the same for me. And that was that was her only reservation. Um, I thought she would hit the roof just because she'd think that I was, you know, I always considered my, myself her little girl and I, how could I possibly run a Formula One team? Um, but she didn't. And so I, I continued to have the conversations with Toto for many weeks over that winter. And then one day, Toto phoned me up and said, Bernie's got a potential sponsor for us. He wants to see us. And unfortunately, it happened to coincide with the day I was supposed to be moving house on the 22nd of December. And I'd kind of booked it way in advance. You know, it's Christmas. Nothing's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And um, I was like, oh, for God's sake, I'm moving house, Toto, on that day. It's really inconvenient. But, you know, hey, it's Bernie. You can't, you know, if Bernie's asked to see you, you go. And so I, I went up and went to Bernie's Princess Gate, Princess Gate yeah. went to his office and it was all so weird because Toto said he'd meet me there and Bernie wasn't ready which was fine so I was put in his office but the clock just kept ticking and Toto hadn't arrived and Bernie wasn't coming in and so I was in Bernie's office by myself for a good half an hour before I decided to call Toto and I went where are you we're supposed to be here Bernie's come in and said he's waiting for you and then Toto said, oh, yeah, I'm stuck in traffic. I'll be there in a few minutes. And then anyway, another 15 minutes go by and he still hasn't arrived. So I phoned him again. So Toto, seriously, what is going on? We're, you know, we're going to be in trouble here. You need to get here. And he said, Claire, please don't hate me. And I was like, OK, something is not right. What is going on? And um, he said, Bernie's going to come and talk to you. I'll be there soon. Please don't hate me and hung up on me. And I was like, OK. And um, so then Bernie came in and he said, are you ready to run a Formula One team? And I was like. No, not really. <laughs> and anyway, we just had a, a conversation about it. And I just said, I I remembered the conversation. I said, I, I don't think I am, Bernie. I don't think I am ready. Um, I don't want to let the team down. I wouldn't want the dad down, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, I think you can. Um, we're going out for lunch. Toto's coming in now. And then Toto rocks up and then can, looks really sheepish. He said, I'm so sorry. And then we all went out for lunch. And Bernie, So Toto knew that the conversation yeah. was going to... Yeah, I think he maybe wanted... This is how I remember it. Bernie, Bernie and Toto may have a totally other story, but this is how I remember it. I'm, I don't know whether Toto thought if he got Bernie on side and if Bernie thought it was a good idea, then it must be a good idea. And if Bernie talked to me, then I would feel okay about it. Because Bernie then, we went out for lunch and spent the next two hours saying, don't worry, everything will be fine. I'll make sure I'll, you know, I'll look after you. Don't worry about anything. So I went home slightly shell-shocked, moved house, and then the whole thing happened, you know, in the following weeks. But Dad well, didn't know anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think Toto was pushing so hard for you? I have no idea. Even today, know. you don't know. I don't know. Um, I, I no, I don't know. I can't answer that. No, that's, that's an odd question. So, how was it? Do you feel? Answer. Do you look back and think, how naive were you to the sort of? The, the, the big wheels within Formula One at that time. Did yeah. you make any decisions that perhaps you would have done differently now, knowing what you know now? No, I wouldn't. I think, well, at the time as well, it wasn't like I was just 
made DTP or, or whatever, and there was no one else around. You know, we, we still had board because we were listed. So I wasn't just doing everything alone, first off. We had some issues with certain people at the time that we had to deal with. And then you know, very quickly, I realized I needed good people around me if I was going to do what I needed to do and brought in Mike O'Driscoll, who was at the time one of our non-exec directors and who I'd always got on really well with um, over the previous couple of years. And so I asked Mike to come in and be our, um, he was just going to come in to be our interim CEO. Um, and then he's still here with me. But I don't think in those first few months, I, I, it was such a whirlwind um, because as well, that was when my mom was incredibly sick. And um, in fact, we were supposed to announce the fact that I was DTP, um, I think in Australia. It's such a blur because, you know, she was so ill and we were looking after her at home before she died. And we had to delay the announcement because mum then passed away. Um, and so, so I don't think it was it was tough because I was in that job, but I was torn because I needed to be at home with mum. But I was had taken on this huge new role and I didn't want to let the team down. Um, but looking back, I can't believe that we got through, I got through those months, but I knew the work that I needed to do that year and I buried myself in it probably as a mechanism to cope with losing mum. But I think between Mike and myself, we made some good decisions actually that year because we came out in 2014 and took the team from some pretty dismal performances in the previous few years to third in the championship that year. Of course, in the, you had the Mercedes engine deal, mm -hmm. Massa, Martini, there have yeah. been yeah, lots of positive. What, what sort of impact did mum's death, your mum's death have on you? Uh, I think probably the same as anyone losing their mum at a young age. Um, we knew it was coming. Um, she was sick for a very long time, but she dealt with it extraordinarily well, as my mum always dealt with everything um, so well. But I really, I just buried myself in Williams. My job, I felt, was to honour mum's memory and to do what I could do to turn the team around because one of her greatest sadnesses was in the few years before she died when she was sick was to see the team you know, really on its knees. That's how she saw it. And you know, the last race that she ever came to was Barcelona 2012, which we won, which I do believe, you know, everyone still thinks how on earth did we do that? But I believe that was very much in the hands of the gods and it was her, you know, it was the last hurrah for my mum. But I, I don't know if I've even dealt with it. You know, I just do what I do every day here for mum and dad really in honor of both of them. I remember when she was at races, she had such a presence. And do you remember she used to have flowers as you came into the motorhome? Mm -hmm. And she used to take such pride. I remember... She used to do the flowers. Yeah, I know. And she's, mm. I remember her showing me yeah. the flowers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know, she, she obviously she organised. So when you asked earlier about yes. the influence my mum had, she was very much, I suppose, a trigger for the Williams brand and how we represent ourselves. Mum used to make sure, you know, the, what you know the sort of pepper shakers mum would select and um the flowers in the motorhome but for every british grand prix she would do the flowers every other race they were bought in by you know outside companies but she took great pride in doing them for silverstone because she always felt it was our home race the flowers should be extraordinary so she used to get up at two in the morning to go to covent garden to the flower um sellers the the re you know the wholesalers and um she used to go and load the car up spend a fortune and drive them to Silverstone and then spend the next three hours putting them up herself. And then showing me. And then showing everyone that would <laughs> yes. pay any attention. But, you know, it's small things like that that in honour of mum, yeah. the same flowers, the last flowers she did for the motome are still the flowers that we have in the motome today. And it's just things like we've got a picture of her, a couple of pictures of her up in the motome. And 
you know, she is such an important part of the Williams story. You know, really, in effect, if it weren't for mum, this team wouldn't exist because when dad had run out of money and mum was bankrolling it, she sold her flat to bankroll it, her car, everything. You know, they did it together. They fought the bailiffs off together. Mum used to hide behind the sofa when we were born in our, you know, the first house when we were about two. There were no carpets on the floors, no curtains. She used to hide behind the sofa when the bailiffs came knocking. You know, but she was in it and she believed in dad. And, you know, so very much if she she wasn't there and she wasn't behind dad, then Williams, I don't believe, would be here today. And a lot of people listening may not be aware that there's a butterfly Mm. on the nose of the car isn't there there's a story there yeah so mum loved butterflies I think um, she's probably one of the oldest people ever to get a tattoo she got a tattoo she came home with one when she was about 60 or maybe a little (laughs) earlier but very small butterfly just on the inside of her wrist in pale blue and um, dad clearly was absolutely horrified mum thought it was hilarious and so when she died I wanted to do something to mark um, her death but to carry her with us you know, forever. And we obviously have the Senate S on our car. And on the other side of the nose, we have the little logo, um, which is a butterfly coming out of a sun in honour of my mum. And we'll race with that as long as we continue to race. What is the biggest thing you've learned since being Deputy Dean Principal? Trust no one. (laughs) I mean, we laugh. Do you actually mean that? No, I don't. I mean, outside of the team, obviously, you're talking. No, do you know, I think my, my lessons... I've learned from other people and probably mainly my dad in this sport. And I've always lived by the, you know, a couple of rules of thumb. And for me, they are work hard and you'll get your just rewards and something good will always turn up. And for me, the way I go about running this business is I like to think anyway with honesty and with integrity and doing it the right way. And I hope that that pays off with people wanting to join our team, whether that be employees or drivers or partners, whoever it is, um, that have the same philosophy, the same ethos for doing things. So for me, that's how I go about what I do. And that's how, you know, I will always continue to run this team. Do you feel, as a woman in Formula One, in, in the role that you are in, do you feel accepted by the sport and by the other team principals in the pit lane? Um, I've never asked myself that question, probably because I don't care um, whether they accept me or not, because I'm here. Um, This is my team, my family team. Um, I'm doing my job and I get on with my job and I have to do the best for Williams at the end of the day. I don't care whether people accept me or not. I'm here whether they like it or not. Um, I don't believe anyone has a problem with me. I hope they don't. I hope that I, I feel very strongly you know, about building good relationships with people. I think people accept me. But if they don't, that's their problem. It's not mine. I read somewhere a while back, someone, um, quite a respected journalist, had come into the paddock at a race. And she described the Formula One paddock as a cesspit of chauvinism. Would you agree with that? <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> She's still got her medium access pass. <laughs> um, that's not allowed, is it? Uh, <laughs> Criticising F1. Uh, yeah, well... <laughs> What are your thoughts on that? A cesspit of chauvinism. Do you know, I've always kind of stood by the line, I haven't experienced chauvinism. I always think you have to take as you find, don't you, in life? Um, But to be truthful, I have. I have experienced chauvinism. Um, I wouldn't go into the details of it, but I'm pretty... I have a pretty robust character, I think, and I don't really tolerate it. So if someone does behave like that with me, um, I always think, 
either what goes around comes around or I will make sure I pay you back at some point. Or I just, you know, if someone, it's small things. It's like you can be in a meeting and I'm always invariably in a meeting filled with men and I either can't get a word in edgeways or someone talks over me. And that happens an awful lot. But I don't know whether that's just because, you know, because that's their nature and they talk over everyone or it's because I'm a woman. I think you can read so much into this kind of stuff. Um, either I just let it go and I think whatever, or, you know, there's always going to be payback at some point in the future. Um, it doesn't doesn't bother me. But I know, you know, there, there are always instances, but there always are in lots of industries, instances of either sexual harassment or chauvinism or women not, you know, having a being allowed to have a voice or a say. And I think that that's wrong. And, you know, in my role, obviously, I'm asked these questions a lot. I do a lot of appearances and events talking about the importance of women in industry. And when I started this role, I didn't really care. It was like, you know, I'm not fussed. I'm a woman, woman, whatever. But actually, it is really important. I've come to learn that it is really important that when you are lucky enough to be in a position like I am, that you must use that to help other women. And so, you know, we're looking at doing things like creating a Women at Williams group here for all the women that work here to make sure that they have a voice, to make sure that any issues that are very particular to women are looked after or cared for, dealt with. What's the male-female split within the team? Oh, it's it's small uh, when it comes to the number of women that we so have. So it's about one in nine. One in nine. Okay. Yeah, and one do you in think nine that's typical across Formula One? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I don't know the numbers in the other mm. teams, but we clearly need to do a lot more to bring women in and to show them that this is a sport that's welcoming to women as much as it is men. I find it odd that people say it's a cesspit of chauvinism. There's a lot of men. It was one so, columnist, but yeah. it just, I thought it was... Uh, yeah, I just no, because I, I don't. I, I've always felt, that actually, that the it's blokes... It's great that you don't. No, I, I feel, actually, the blokes that are in Formula One, everyone I've encountered, the majority of them anyway, incredibly chivalrous towards women, um, very gentlemanly. And, but, of course, you maybe get a few bad eggs, but you do everywhere you go, in any walk of mm. life, in any industry. It's mm. just the way of the world. And, you know, that's not going to change. That's that's life and it's going to well it's not going to change right here and now um you know it's going to take generations to bring equality into the world isn't it quick word on motherhood mm. how's we nate uh, how, how old is he now nate just turned one a couple of weeks ago wow, he is flies. gorgeous he's so cute it's been eye-opening i was never that sure whether having children was my destiny and obviously i left it very late um working at williams didn't really give me that window but i bit the bullet and i I have to say it's been the best thing I've ever done. He is truly um, amazing. I love being a mum. I don't get to spend enough time with him, obviously, but then so many other women don't and so many other dads don't either. So How difficult do you find it juggling the mum work? Yeah, thing? it's it's not easy. In Does he come here at all? Does he come to... He's coming to lunch tomorrow with his grandpa um, so I can see him because this is a really busy week. I'm not going to... Uh, I think I worked out last night. I'm going to see him for four hours this whole week and that makes me a really rubbish mum, doesn't it? But, but Claire, what, just, can I stop you? So... What do you, why so big? I mean, I appreciate it's it's a busy time of year in terms of 2019, but mm. have you got things going on every evening or just, can you just shed no. any light on what? No, I, I wake up at 5.30 and... Tell I, us about your day. Oh my, this is so <laughs> exciting. Get up at half five. Um, I leave the house at quarter to seven. I'm in the office. It takes, I live, we moved house, amazing house and it's lovely, but rather stupidly, it's further away from Williams. So it takes me you know, an hour on a good run to get to the office. So I leave early to try and beat the traffic. So I'm at my desk by about quarter to eight. And then my day literally is back to back meetings. Um, and so when I finally finish and I, I'm trying to create a new policy this week where I finish at four. 
so that I can get home to do bath and bed and then I'll do some couple of, you know, a couple of hours or whatever in the evening. So you know, my day is just one thing to the next. It's nonstop. And then obviously it, then we go racing at the weekends as well. So it's really hard juggling being a mum, but I'm in the fortunate position that I'm actually, I can take Nate to races. You know, if I've, you know, I can organise my day so that I can leave early. I don't have to ask anyone's permission. You know, so I am in a fortunate position, but I have to, as much as I'm a mum, I also have Williams as well. And I have a responsibility to this team. Um, and, you know, sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong. And when I'm with Nate, I feel guilty that I'm not at Williams. And when I'm at Williams, I feel guilty I'm not at home with my family. So it is tough, but, you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't complain. I'm in a very fortunate position in so many ways. And is your is one of your ambitions to be able to pass the baton to Nate one day? As in, I'm talking that about would, the team. Yeah, yeah, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Third generation of Williams. Um, whether that's possible, you know, it's going to be you know, 20 years at least. And Nate would only be 20 and that would be incredibly young to take over a Formula One team. And who knows, he might not even want to do it. My little brother's just had a baby as well. So, you know, there's another contender for the title of the next TP. Um, so yeah, if that's what he wants to do, I would certainly not stop him. And But I don't know whether, you know, I might not continue to be doing this job in 20 years time for him to be able to take over. So I don't know what history holds. I just take each day as it comes. Final thing I wanted to talk to you about was OBE. Mm. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems a very long time ago and I'm kind of hiding at the moment from the queen, hoping she won't strip me of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was 2016, wasn't it? Did, was it who, who actually gave you the gong? It was Prince Charles. What, yeah, I don't. What, what do you remember of the day? Um, it was freezing. Oh my god, I've never been so cold in my whole life. I don't think they have heating at Buckingham Palace. So I went. My best friend came with me. My husband, um, obviously, and you know, you go and you're doled up. And we went. It was a very early morning in January, um, and you go and you you get put in this holding pen, if you like, and Ant and Deck were there on the same day collecting their gongs. Did and you chat to them? No, I was too ner- I too, too shy. I get a starstruck with people. Like You're starstruck by Anton Deck. <laughs> yeah. well, I love Anton Deck. Who doesn't like Anton well, Deck, for goodness sake? Um, how would you, for, for the people living abroad, yeah, you're not going to know this, who how would, Deck how would you are. describe who Anton Deck are? They are um, TV presenters, right? They present uh, yeah. like the biggest TVs in these yeah. shows in they the are UK. A staple of Saturday night they telly, are. aren't they? Reality TV, mm. and there's nothing better than a bit yeah. of reality TV. Um, so yeah, so you go, you, you queue up and you wait and you're told, you know, you're given your instructions how to greet and how you have to walk towards him, how you have to walk away from him. And I totally messed up walking away. I turned my back and that's the worst thing you could do. But I was so nervous about getting it right. And also I was wearing heels, which doesn't help. And everyone's watching. There's a room filled with 200 odd people and you've got all these equiries looking at you to make sure that you're not doing anything you shouldn't. But then, do you know, I was really... What just, did he say to you when you I actually... I have no idea. I have no I idea. I assume he said he something. Said. Yeah, yeah, he said something that was just like, hey, what you did say? Hey, <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> um, Does hey, Prince I think Charles says, know much about Formula One? I don't... I think they're briefed, aren't they? So okay. he said, oh, I hear you run a Formula One team or, or whatever. Mm. And congratulations. Well, you, then you turned your back. Well, no, you have to take you, so you three have to or walk four backwards. steps backwards before you can turn around. And I, I think I turn around pretty much straight away. Um, so that was not my finest hour. And you just want to do it again because it goes so quickly as well. But funny enough, I got to my seat 
And I was sitting next to a gentleman next to me because you have to go and sit while everyone else gets their gongs. So I was sat there for like three hours, freezing, quite bored. And then you have to go and queue for your photo to be taken. And there's no heating. And it was January and the doors were open. So literally I got home and I had to get in a sleeping bag. I had two hot water bottles. I've never been more cold in my life. Um, but it was it's you know, it's a true honor. And Where you I keep can't your believe gong? that I have it. Oh, God, where is it? I've got no idea. That's really bad, isn't it? <laughs> I've actually forgotten where I put it. <laughs> uh, I'm hugely respectful of the fact that I've got it. Mm. However, I feel that it, it's come too early and I don't deserve it. I genuinely feel I don't deserve it. I was quite shocked. I literally nearly fell over when I opened the letter. And the thing was, you open the letter and it says you have been nominated but it won't be signed off until they actually officially announce it. I had to wait three months and you're not allowed to tell anyone. But me or Big Mouth over here, I told quite a few people and then suddenly realised, oh my God, what if, you know, what if they don't, act, the Queen doesn't actually approve it? <laughs> so I was, oh, I was in quite a world of pain for three months, but I, I haven't deserved it yet. So it's mm. put away in a drawer till I deserve it, I think, then it may come out again. Well, of the things you're... Um deserving of if that's the right way of putting it but what else what are you most proud of just away from the team obviously there's nate but i mean you're vice president of the spinal injuries association yeah. doing some great work there actually yeah um so i was so honored when they asked me to that so this, the sia has been our official charity for many many years um but i didn't when i a few years ago i didn't think that we were doing enough when i took over the dtp role and still wanted to do a whole lot more because obviously I've seen firsthand, well not firsthand, but living with someone with a spinal cord injury, what it's like and just the sheer effort that it takes for someone to get out of bed in the morning. They, you know, we can jump out of bed and go and do what we need to do and they can't. And that, you know, just to be able to get up and out and do stuff is quite ex an extraordinary achievement for people that are spinally cord injured. Um, and I felt as a team with the resource that we have, you know, this is a charity that doesn't get any government support. The government support for spinal cord injured people is being cut year on year in the budgets. Um, you know, kids that are breaking their necks in rugby accidents or um, diving into shallow swimming pools, whatever it is, there's no care for them. There's there's very few places um, in the UK anymore. They're shutting down rehab centres. These young kids are being put in all people's homes. And they don't have the financial support on their families. A lot of their families don't in order to bring them home. We were so lucky with dad that we could afford to have him at home and he could have that care. Um, so I wanted to use Williams in order to shine more of a light on the SIA and try and generate more funding for them. So I'm really proud of the work that we can do. To be fair, I feel quite bad because this year I haven't obviously been able to focus on it as much as I have in previous years. And I need to probably get on that a bit more. <laughs> Well, look, Claire, it's been wonderful to catch up. Thank, Thank you for your time. So, look, for the for the Williams fans out there, we've got George Russell coming in next year. We do. Lovely George. Yeah. And I say it Giant so George. well, don't Giant I? Giant George. Giant he's, George. He's, he's, you're going to need a... I say it with such a posh voice, like George. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember. Who was the last F1 driver to be called George? I... Has there ever been an F1 driver called George? I think there has. And oh, I'm afraid I don't have... Uh, yeah. But not George Russell. But and George I, I Russell. I don't think there's ever been one as tall as George. Certainly that. Yeah, but they're all Six quite... Six foot two? Six they're, foot two? Yeah, they're all quite tall these days, but he's mm. tiny. He weighs nothing, mm. but he is gorgeous George, and I think he's going to set the world on fire. Maybe, or maybe not in a Williams, but I think he's going to be amazing. I think he's going to be fantastic for us, and I think he's going to be fantastic in the future in his career in Formula One. And can you tell us who else is going to be driving for you next year? Well, Tom, 
No, not me. It won't be me, I promise. <laughs> it's going to break it, but I'm not going to. Um, you won't be waiting long. So um, We won't be waiting. You so won't be waiting. Before long. the end of the year? Yeah, before, before the end of the season that we make an announcement. But I'm not going to ruin the surprise. All right. Well, look, we look forward to hearing who it is. Yes. And Claire, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Such disarming honesty from Claire. She tells it as it is, which isn't something you can say about every team boss in the pit lane. And she tells it with a passion born from a lifetime engrossed in the sport. Her stories were fabulous, and I'm intrigued to know which F1 driver made his bed after staying the night. Who was that? Look, thanks for your time, Claire. It was great to catch up. Well, that's it for another week, but of course, we'll be back soon with another F1 superstar. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Beyond the Grid. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. And please keep getting in touch, and thank you for your feedback about recent episodes. To Dave Weston, I'm glad you enjoyed last week's podcast with Jackie Stewart. He certainly gave great insight into a different age. Keep the correspondence coming. You can drop me a line using the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out.